Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. I'm publishing this episode on April 19th, 2023, which means there's just one week to go before the publication of my new book, Modern Horse Training, a constructional guide to becoming your horse's best friend. I'm not good at elevator pitches, so while we're waiting for the publication date, I've been writing short posts in my blog. These aren't excerpts from the book. Instead, I've been writing about my training background and what the phrase modern horse training means to me. You can read the posts at theclickercenterblog.com. I'll tell you more about them and the book at the end of the podcast. For now, I want to jump back into our conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. In addition to being a horse person, Claire is a behavioral analyst. She teaches at West Virginia University, where her research focuses on improving outcomes for children who struggle in school. One of her areas of interest is extinction, and in particular, the generative effects of extinction. So extinction is our general topic. In part one, Claire got us started by defining extinction. And that seems as though that should have taken just a couple of minutes, but of course it didn't. In part two, we began with macro extinction, and we did look at the generative effects of extinction and extinction bursts, and Claire offered an interesting connection between loopy training and extinction bursts. And now in part three, we're going to look at the role that extinction plays in shaping. And if we're using micro-extinction, then it shouldn't be that much harder either. And it's the micro-extinction that we really want to be playing with. So that in the shaping, when you're working in a loop, so you have the the behavior leads to click, leads to reinforcement, leads to the next cue, you've got that nice cycle going. And the mantra is when a loop is clean, you get to move on not only get to move on, but you should move on. There will be variability. We do not produce carbon copies. So there will be variability coming into the loop. And when a behavior begins to occur frequently enough that you notice it, you can begin to shift to it. And a good example of that is when you have a horse who's in grown-ups are talking and he's standing well, his nose is where you'd like him. He's giving you this nice, beautiful, still behavior, but his ears are back more than they're forward. And you think, oh, you'd be so much prettier if you just put your ears forward. So I'm going to withhold my click until you put your ears forward. If you happen to have positioned your horse so that he's listening to all the horses moving around outside the barn and they're behind him. The chances of his popping his ears forward are pretty slim to none. And so you're going to have this long desert of no reinforcement. And then you might get lucky that some something 
tweaks his attention in front of him and the ears pop forward and you throw a click in, but, but you're really in a desert of, of reinforcement. But if I'm in grownups and I haven't really been paying attention to what the ears are doing because my focus has been on where's his nose and, and am I getting my click in in a timely fashion? Do I remember how to, how to get my hand into my pocket to get treats out and where to feed my horse, et cetera, et cetera? A lot of details to pay attention to. But now I'm, things are beginning to stabilize enough that his ear does move forward and a couple of times, and I may not notice it at first because there's so much else going on. But now that movement of his ear catches my attention. And I begin to think, oh, ears, be nice if they went forward. But I'm still working just on where's your nose. And I do a couple more iterations and I notice, again, oh, his ears are moving. At the point where I've noticed that his ears are moving, I can shift that and make it the criterion because it's likely that in the, the normal duration that I'm working in with that horse, that that behavior that I'm shifting to is likely to occur. And so I will get my click in before my horse is, is starting to feel frustrated because nothing he's not getting reinforced. So the criterion that you're shifting to is already occurring before you shift to that new criteria. And that's the piece that I think for quite a while was missing in the descriptions of shaping. So we were talking about not making things harder and harder and harder. And one of the advice you hear a lot is to ping pong between, you know, if you're asking for four of something, whatever, then ask for three and then ask for five. So every time, so in a way we're kind of, cause sometimes we're extinguishing three because now we're asking for five, but then we're going back to three. So how do you see that? You know, it's kind of going in micro extinction and then not, you know, making it easier for a little bit and then trying to push the bar a little. So that ping pong. Schedules. Oh, that's yeah. a good subject. Yeah, it's in. <laughs> I mean, I can answer that from a research side, but I don't think that the research, you know, Alex and I have had many a conversation about how the research side of schedules doesn't necessarily align with the idea of, teaching in loops where every loop ends in a ends in a reinforcer right like where you're deliberately doing intermittent reinforcement where some responses that meet your criteria are going unreinforced and I think that those two ways to accomplish that ping pong right like are you saying we're gonna do sometimes I'm gonna do head lowering and grown-ups and two leg lifts and that's gonna result in a reinforcer and sometimes but there's always one at the end of the loop, or I'm going to bend my reinforcement schedule where I'm going to do targeting. And it now is like the fourth touch to the target. And sometimes it's the third touch to the target. And sometimes it's the sixth touch to the target that pays off M might be different approaches. Schedules. It's a whole, it's a whole other subject, isn't it? 
Are... So it's it's interesting though because behavior analysts talk about intermittent schedules as including periods of local extinction. Yeah. So you're right, Dominique. Right? Like when we talk about intermittent reinforcement schedules, and an intermittent reinforcement schedule is is anything other any schedule other than one where every re, every response pays off. There are periods of local extinction embedded in those, and they result in typical schedule effects like. When we talk about oh, how much in the schedules do you want to go, that is a whole thing. Yeah. Well, let, let's just take a really like simple example. Okay, you're you're and you're trying to do loops, but let's say you're teaching, you're trying to teach duration on head lowering. Okay, so you're at three seconds of head lowering, and you feel that now you can go a little bit you can go to four seconds. Are you never going to come back to three? Are you going to, after four, go to five and go to six and go to seven? Or are you sometimes going to reinforce four when you are at the five criteria? Or is loopy training saying, nope, you never go back you always expand your loop. You always make it harder. I have an answer. Do you have an answer, Alex? <laughs> I, want, I want to hear your answer. I figured you might say that. So I think that I am, I am doing my best impression of Alexander Kurland. Then Alexander Kurland can tell me how good of an impression it is. If you think that you can hold head down for five seconds, you should reinforce in four. And you are gonna get variability in behavior because you get variability in environment. And your variability in behavior and environment is likely to not be unidirectional. So that means that yesterday I could work on five seconds of head lowering because, or 10 seconds of head lowering because it was a calm, sunny day and we had done a lot of other work already and we were kind of warmed up to the idea of loops, but today it's gusting 30 miles an hour and snow's blowing sideways. And I'm not gonna ask for 10 second loops because I'm not gonna get 10 second loops because my conditions are a little bit different. And that's a wild example maybe, but yesterday I trained at 2.32 PM on a nice calm sunny day. And today I'm training at 4.35 PM on a nice calm sunny day. And today is not yesterday. And so I think it's kind of incumbent on me to say, to know my learner and have a sense of my loops to be able to know what that criteria should be on that day. How'd I do? I think you did splendidly. The one little piece I would add into that is when Dominique, when you say, is Loopy training about, am I always making it harder? Mm. I think expanding does not equal harder because if, if I'm ready and I'm popping my ears forward, I'm, you know, the horse, it's not hard to pop the ears forward. It's already, that behavior is already occurring. If I'm building the behavior well, it shouldn't feel as though that it's harder and, oh, she's making me do more and I've got to do another lap around the arena before I get clicked and reinforced. It's just a tiny increment beyond that I'm well prepared for. So it, it, won't, it won't feel hard. So you never use that 
ping pong strategy, Alex? Yourself? You never do that? Three seconds, five seconds, four seconds, six seconds. I I follow what Claire was just describing. It's that, you know, if I think my animal is going to shift and move away in four seconds, I'm going to click and reinforce in three. So um, if I am expanding a little bit and and I think you know, everything looks great, let me move to six seconds. This is really great. But then on the next iteration, maybe there's a little bit of snow sliding off the arena roof. So I'm I may slip back, and so do my am I always going for it has to be a little longer, a little longer, a little longer. No, you look you look not quite satisfied. Well, okay. First of all, I want to take away the conditions are different today than yesterday. Okay, because this is this is easy. We we know if it's really windy, we're going to make it easier. So okay. all. Conditions being equal, okay? <laughs> they never um, are. <laughs> well, you're in the arena because I, I want to hear about what happens if you do a little micro extinction and then you don't and you do a little micro extinction because I'm interested in that process. So I'm kind of interested in a process which may not be the best way to train Although it is true that this ping-ponging strategy is something you hear a lot in the community, you know? Right. So let's say all conditions are equal and <laughs> I have not heard about loopy training and I want to do this strategy. What happens in terms of extinction for the animal? Is there no frustration? Is, is there a limit to how much you can ping pong, for sure there is. But what happens when you're at the lower end and at the higher end? I want to parse it out a little bit because we're saying we can leverage micro extinction. So there's a point where we fall into macro extinction. And so I, I'm trying to see where those territories are. So you you have one of your horses out and you're working on what? We'll do, we'll do the arena so that there's no wind, no nothing. And I'm alone. <laughs> it's my arena. And we're working on duration head lowering because it's really simple. We're just adding seconds. I'm chuckling because there's, and then a squirrel runs oh. up, the, which happened this morning. It's like, Angor, you have seen squirrels before. <laughs> Or I'm yes. in, I'm in, well, because you'll say if I'm in, even in this stall, things will <laughs> Dominique happen. is in a time capsule bubble yeah. where nothing can intrude and she can rewind time so that there's no <laughs> new learning history. I'm in a lab. I'm in a lab. Okay, then. Even in a lab. Okay. Right? Like, I'm in a lab with a pigeon then. So this so, ping pong strategy, I'm just trying to look at it from the mini extinction okay. point of view. So Dominique put herself in a lab. So let me hop in as if she's across the hall from me in a lab with a pigeon. And she's using this ping pong strategy, which we would call a variable ratio schedule. Yes. And so I would say the rules of your ping pong strategy sound like they should follow the rules of a variable ratio schedule. 
the variable ratio schedule is just a reinforcement schedule where a varying number of responses pays off. It sounds exactly like the ping pong strategy that you're talking about. So sometimes it's three and sometimes it's seven and sometimes it's four. And so what do we know about variable ratio schedules in a laboratory where there's not snow sledding off the roof and there are no squirrels? One is that time still matters and that reinforcement history still matters. So you really truly would need the time machine that I'm talking about to have context not at all play a role. So we can gradually increase ratios over time. And we do this. So all of our undergraduates here at WVU are required as all of our psych majors are required to take an animal laboratory course where they shape the behavior of rats in operant chambers. And one of the things that they do is they gradually increase these variable ratio schedules and they see like at what point, like, is it possible to do this and how much behavior can you maintain with a reinforcer? You can maintain astonishing amounts of behavior with a single reinforcer if you do it systematically. And so, and if it varies across time, how it varies matters. So there's particular distributions when we program variable schedules in the laboratory, the that way that they vary matters. Most people use a mathematical formula that results in what's called a Fleschler-Hoffman distribution because it's named after the people who wrote the formula, but it's it essentially puts a lot of very short ones and a few longer ones. And it turns out that you get different outcomes when you do that than if you just pick numbers at random from the okay. same overall range. So there are nuances probably to how you ping pong. Even if you were to do it in a laboratory with a pigeon, that would probably make a difference. So when they talk about these pigeons that will do 20,000 pecks for one <laughs> reinforcer, how do they do that in a nutshell? Yeah, so it... it it's, but through micro shaping, it is, <laughs> and and they first they don't care about the animal welfare or frustration. That's to start with. You know, interestingly, <laughs> I think that that you can get maybe not twenty thousand pecks, but you can get really long runs of responding without frustration. Just like I imagine, if you were if if you were a skilled clicker trainer you could get a really, really long chain of responses such that you could probably do kind of clinic performances where you're not stopping after every fourth response to click and treat without getting any frustration from your learner. So it, it really m matters how you teach it. And I think that's probably true in both contexts. Does that sit correctly with you? Alex? Yes. Yes. There probably is a limit, right? Like if you're doing 20,000 responses, you probably have a learner who's not entirely happy, no matter how you teach it. But but you could get a pretty substantial chain. Our rats get easily up into the 80s, 100s, and they don't, they, they seem perfectly chipper. You know, they're, they're not engaging in any of the responses that we would think of, right? Like they're not burrowing in their cages. They're not looking away from the levers. They're not engaging in super long pauses. The responding is really disrupted if we teach it well. Now, if you jump from, this is the first time you've pressed the lever to now the requirement is that you're gonna engage in a hundred responses to earn a reinforcer, like absolutely you have a really, really frustrated learner. So the path from point A to point B matters a lot. So we've never talked about the 300 peck pigeon procedure that, that I developed for Robin. And I described it in the writing book. And I described it prior to the writing book. I 
had described it in various articles, but it was an interesting procedure. So Robin, at that time we were boarding in a barn where turnout was rationed. And in the winter, the paddocks were closed. And so for the horses that lived in the barn where Robin was, the only turnout they got in the winter was in the indoor arena while their stalls were being cleaned, which is not a lot of turnout. And, and I could add that their stalls were cleaned at 3 a.m. So they also didn't get any sunlight, which was very stressful for me, if not for them. But that's another story, as it were. So I had a young horse who was not getting enough turnout. And I was traveling a lot, which compounded the problem. And so from this was all sort of management issues. If he'd been turned out more, you know, if I'd had more turnout where he could go out with his friends, I think the behaviors that I was seeing would not have been as, as extreme. So in the, at night when I was there, I would try and get the horses out in the indoor arena as much as I could. But if there were other people there who wanted to use the arena, I couldn't just turn my horses out. It's a boarding bar. So I needed Robin to be able to go into the arena and walk with me on a loose lead without any preliminary playtime or warm up because often it was not available. I couldn't give it to him. So he just, he needed to be able to go into the arena and just walk. Not a big ask really, but he couldn't do it. He would go into the arena and we'd go a couple of steps and then he would grab it at the lead rope or he would grab it my arm and then I would get the lead rope out of his mouth and we'd walk another couple of steps and he'd be grabbing at the lead rope. So I, I needed him to be able to walk without grabbing the lead rope. So we would go into the arena at night and I would, I would ask him to take a step. He could do that. He could, he could walk 10 or 12 steps without grabbing the lead rope, but anything beyond that, he was grabbing the lead rope. So we started out by having him take a step. He would walk one step forward, I would click and treat. If he went one step forward successfully, I then asked for two steps. So it was walk two steps, click and treat, I would then ask for three steps. So, so the ask increased by one after every success. So he walked three steps, click and treat. Then I'm asking for four. One, two, three, four, click and treat. Now I'm asking for five. One, two, three, four, five, click and treat. So now I'm asking for six. One, two, three, four, oh, he's grabbed the lead rope. When he grabs the lead rope, my count would reset back to one. So now I have to think, because it's been a while since I've done this, so I want to make sure I'm describing correctly what I did. So I would reset back to one. And so we would go one step, click, treat, and then I would rebuild it. One, two, click, treat. One, two, three, click, treat. One, two, three, four, click, treat. But at, at any point he grabbed the lead rope, we would reset and I would rebuild the whole thing. 
And I wanted to get to, I wanted him, wanted to get to 300 because I'd heard about these 300 peck pigeons who could peck a key 300 times for one reinforcer. And I wanted that, I wanted that pigeon as my horse. I wanted to be able to go 300 steps without having him bite the lead rope for one click and treat. And the first night we worked, I got to about 100. Second night, I got to 100, 150. And after that, he had the idea down, it was duration, and I could jump straight to 300. It was an interesting process. Yeah, several years ago, some colleagues and I worked on shaping duration of writing for students who had been oppositional in their English language arts classes. You know, so you put writing down in front of them and, you know, it was an immediate, like, no, not going to do this. And so we started, it, it sounds kind of similar to what you did. Like we started with how much will you do, right? And if that's none, then that's none. That's fine. And then built from there. So if it was none at first, then it was like, you will do three seconds of work. Right. And then but you get variation in how long they would write. So like a reinforcer became available at three seconds. But if you wrote for five seconds, then the reinforcer was delivered at five. You know, like when you paused for half of a second, like, right, the reinforcer came. And if you stepped back, like we stepped the criterion back and we were really worried that the students would learn that they could reset the criterion by stopping earlier but that actually didn't happen for any of the students that we worked with. We were able to shape these beautiful durations of journaling because these were third, fourth, and fifth grade students. Long durations of journaling, up to 10 minutes of journaling from these kids that were not doing anything before by basing it on where they started and then kind of gradually changing the criteria. What's the motivation? In that, for that, in that particular study, what was the motivation? Well, if because the rate of reinforcement is going down, so what's the reinforcement for the learner? It's a great, it's a great question, and it makes me think a little bit of the story that was told in the last round of podcasts from the clinic participants. So one of them said, "I had been trying to build in these little, small loops, and then." it wasn't going well. And my horse was getting frustrated and she was doing walks. And then she was like, I have to go three kilometers, right? Like my walks have to be at least three kilometers and then that's fine. And I wonder if there's some amount of that, that we start to build in the repertoires when we are working on duration in these ways. So when we have duration-based behavior, sometimes it starts to become a little episodic and you can see this in duration-based reinforcers, right? Like there are natural ends to some responses and it might be more reinforcing to be able to engage in the entire response, whatever that is for that learner at that time, than to have it interrupted part way. And so for an example that probably makes sense, right? Like if you were watching a video, it might be more reinforcing for you to watch a complete 30 second video than 45 seconds of a video that ends partway through, right? So there was a scientist named Tim Hackenberg who was using videos as reinforcers for participants, human participants in some of his experiments. And he found this effect, right? Like he was trying to vary 
magnitude of the reinforcer by having some people have 30 seconds and some people have 45 and some people have 60, right? Like, and what seems fine, except that people don't like 60 seconds of a two minute video. They would rather watch 30 seconds of a 30 second video Mm -hmm. than 60 seconds of a two minute video. And there might be something as we start to build duration that behavior starts to become a little more episodic like that. I'm halfway through my fifth sentence of this paragraph. Don't interrupt me now. I don't want to stop now. I'm about to finish the sentence. Yes, yes, yes. I can certainly relate to that. You know, you may be asking me to go off and do something really fun, but right now I'm focused in on this project and I'd like to finish it. And there was in the 300 peck pigeon process with, with Robin, there was clear extinction because as we, as we walked along, he would start to, he would start to pose, he would start to offer me this beautiful walk. But when I clicked was contingent on the number of steps, not on how beautiful he was. So I was really good at clicking for, oh, aren't you really beautiful? Let me click and reinforce that. And, but not necessarily building out the duration because you think, oh, if you thought, if you thought I looked beautiful then, just look at, look at me now. And so to, to get to, could you do it longer? There was an extinction process. So he would, he would start to puff himself up and he'd be going along beautifully and he could produce multiple steps of that. And around 10 or 12 steps, he would start to, you know, but you're not clicking me for my beautiful pose. So maybe I should reach over and bite at your sleeve just to remind you that I was just posing there and then the count would have to reset back to back to one and we went through there were these there were certain in that 10 to 12 range there was quite a lot of extinction of but I'm posing and then there was another round of it round in the 25-ish strides and then he settled in on and I wasn't I I didn't videotape this a long time ago it's too bad I didn't videotape it but he started to walk with his head down so it was almost as though well I'm going to be doing it longer what can I do longer that I can maintain and that I'm okay with doing longer and so for him it was well I'll just drop my head well that was ideal that was perfect because now I've had a horse who could come into the arena walk with me around the arena on a loose lead with his head down and a horse who had not had the turnout that he desperately needed, but he could walk on a long lead with his head down. It was really quite an interesting process. So I wonder your opinion about how that would have gone if you had had no extinction at all. And here's, here's an interesting So I work with learners where sometimes we want no extinction at all. Like even little bits of micro extinction might be, might be too much if we're not super careful. So in that, this is an emerging area of research and behavior analysis is how you can shape with no extinction at all. And that is being done by changing another parameter of reinforcement. So this is often the quantity of reinforcement 
the quality of reinforcement, the immediacy of reinforcement are the three most common. And so, for example, there was a 2010 paper by Athens and Vollmer, and they were working with with children with severe behavior, and they didn't want to put extinction in place, and they wanted to kind of shape new alternative responses. And so instead of putting extinction in place, what they did was they, across experiments, varied those three things. Like, are there, is there more reinforcers available for the next approximation? Are there better reinforcers available for the next approximation? Or there are there kind of more immediate or cleaner reinforcer deliveries for the next approximation? So in the context of your 300 peck robin, right, it might be that you have grain and hay pellets, if those are different qualities for that, you know, it's always a study of one, but let's just say grain is better than hay pellets. And so if you pose, you get hay pellets. And if you walk further, you get grain, right? Like, so I'm not saying like, you're not going to get a reinforcer for this particular response. Then walking gets a little bit hard because you probably, you'd have to deliver your hay pellet while still walking, which adds a complication. Um, Right. But there's lots of other responses that you could think of maybe where you you might be able to shape by varying those other dimensions of reinforcement. And I wonder what you think about that in the context of horse training. I think it's definitely worth exploring more. I mean, the 300 peck pigeon was over 25 years ago. So... Hopefully we could improve upon it. And, but even and, generally, let's say that you're trying to shape anything, right? Like you're trying no. to get, you're trying to get the next iteration. Like you, you've got grownups and you're trying to get grownups with ears forward, right? Like what do you think would happen if you delivered differing qualities or magnitudes of reinforcer for regular grownups versus so, grownups with ears forward? Okay. So let me go back to Robin. So for Robin, I think that would create frustration. Because he's one of those individuals who would be trying to figure out why this round got the grain. And that in instance, he only got the hay stretcher pellets or the, the grass pellets. And it would actually, for him, complicate things, having the reinforcers vary. Even if they vary systematically, such that he could figure it out. Right. Like if your ears are forward, you get the grain. And if your ears aren't forward, then you don't. Because I think when you've talked about it before, it's just been like, are you varying what you're doing? And maybe that's different from horse to horse. And if it's varying, but there's not a you're not going to be able to figure out how it's varying because it's not varying systematically. Like for me, when in my pouch, I always mix hay stretchers and carrots. And you know, I think the carrot has a little bit more value, but I, you know, when I'm taking my hand in the pouch, I, sometimes I will pick the carrot, you know, but in general, I don't distinguish. It's a, it's a reward, but maybe I should, you know, maybe it's a mistake. And by now it's pro- it may be too late because I've been doing it for so long that the, the horses probably have figured out that there's no logic be- behind it. But if I were new, starting over, 
I'd love to experiment with that and see if it works. You know, you have two pouches, one with carrots, one with hay pellets. And when you get the tougher stuff, you give the carrot and see what happens. That would be interesting. Maybe I can do it still. But then you also are setting up an expectation, which is mm -hmm. saying, you know, for the for the pose, I'm going to pay with the the premium treats, and for this other behavior, for grown ups, I'm going to give you hay stretchers. Yeah. So is is that going to create problems down the road? Yeah, I think. What What I does the re so the research? What did it say? Did it, what? How did it work? So it 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 works it works best when there are multiple dimensions that vary so for for the for behavior to change like it changes when there's extinction in place they had to vary all three right like they ended up needing to make it more better faster reinforcers for it to be for the for behavior to look equivalent kind of to what we would expect if you had an extinction, if you were using kind of a micro, like a shaping with a micro extinction in place. So it's comp, it, it's not an easy strategy to use. I think one difference that I hadn't thought of until you all were talking was when, when we're training the horses, it, the shape, the shaping never ends. Right. Like there's right. always we're we're taking the response and we're continuing to transform it over time. Whereas I think sometimes with and maybe this is a sad testament to what we do with our human learners, but like with our human learners, I think there is like a terminal, you will write your journal, right? And then like that is it, you know, and maybe at the at the horse level, it's like you will do your Grand Prix pee off. And that is it. And so maybe one difference is that in the in the research that's been done, the better quality reinforcer has been associated with a response that then stays a terminal response, right? Like you have done your journal writing and it will always pay off in this. It will always pay off with carrots. I mean, pieces of chocolate in case of our study. Like yes. it will always pay off with carrots. And there's not a point at which it would switch to being the hay pellet response. And maybe that's the difference, right? Is that the studies that have used that strategy have been pretty outcome oriented, right? Like okay. we want you to get to this, want behavior to look like this. And there's, right. there's going to be a reinforcer in place for it looking like this. Once we're there, that high quality reinforcer will yeah. stay. It's not like we're, it then becomes the next approximation to something else. You're a giraffe in the zoo. I want to do a blood draw. The blood draw will, you know, and all of those procedures associated with coming up to the protective contact barrier and presenting various body parts, you will always be paid with chopped up carrots. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's a good, that is a good animal training example of like where you have this final product that you're not probably going to do gobs more shaping to turn it into something right. else down the line. But I do think the fact that you get, that we get effects we get differentiation of behavior. We get learners who do like try to figure out and do figure out, do allocate their yes. behavior to like, this is what's producing the better reinforcers. I think suggests that if you are going to mix a bunch of things in your pouch to keep an eye on it at the very yes. least. Yes. Right? And to be looking for is that 
is that frustrating your learner? Because like, this is extinction for carrots, you know, like yeah. this produced yeah. carrots last time and it's not producing carrots now. And is this extinction for carrots? And I think particularly the case of people are viewing their treat pouch very broadly, right? Like, so some, I think we can include non-food reinforcers. And I think if people are kind of indiscriminately, like some clicks produce grain and some clicks produce carrots and some clicks produce hay stretcher pellets and some clicks produce scratches and some clicks produce hats on the withers, right? Like you probably need to be thoughtful about those approaches because yes. those different qualities of reinforcers are probably not all functioning the same. And your learner might be, some of those might be experienced a little extinction by your learner. And that gets back to what we were talking about, about the context shifts too, Yes. right? Like, hey, hey, pellets may be fine if they're the only thing in that pouch, but if I just got three carrots in a row and now I'm getting a hay pellet, that hay pellet may be viewed as a, like, this is a worsening of conditions. Yes. I was getting carrots. What happened this time where I didn't, where a carrot wasn't forthcoming, right? A hay pellet was forthcoming. So mm -hmm. definitely it's just like we're thinking about how all these things function. There are so many variables. It's a wonder <laughs> any of us can ever, ever train anything, but we do. And but we do. And, and the more we understand some of the whys and wherefores and what the laboratory experiments inform us, the clearer we are definitely in our training. One more about the different qualities is that we have some emerging evidence that behavior that has a history of reinforcement with more frequent or larger magnitude, so bigger quantity or more immediate reinforcement are more resistant to extinction to responses that have a history with less frequent or smaller magnitude or delayed reinforcement. And I think that that's that is exacerbated, that effect is exacerbated when those parameters are varying. So if you are introducing carrots and hay pellets, the things that you're reinforcing with carrots, whether that be on purpose or by accident, yeah. like I happen to reach into my pouch and I happen to get a carrot more often for this response than another, those responses are going to be probably more resistant to extinction. This has like huge implications for desperation clicks Yes. Right. Like where people click and then like I click and I'm going to pull out and I happen to pull out grain and it's after something because I need to dish that behavior off and I needed to like get you doing something else. And I didn't have that good cue. Like we were in extinction. We're starting to get an extinction. I was starting to get a behavior I didn't want. And then rather I don't have a good history of cueing. I haven't done a good job of, of shaping up using micro extinction. And then I desperation click. And if that ends up being by accident, a larger magnitude reinforcer because I'm more nervous and I reach into my pouch, like grab a big handful. And it's a carrot. <laughs> and it's a carrot. Like it's, I happen to get a big handful of carrots because I'm nervous. And instead of plucking out the one hay stretcher pellet, like I normally do, like I end up with like a handful of hay stretcher pellets and carrots. I have now not only strengthened that response, I have made it harder to get rid of in the future. Yes. Um, so I think that that for me is like part of it, it takes us back to why careful teaching of those base positions is so important, right? And if you're yes. gonna err on something, like we are building those base positions with immediate reinforcement, with 
probably, you know, like if you're going to use a higher quality reinforcer, like do it for those because those are the ones that we want to be really resistant to extinction. And we want to have those under really good cues so that if we do push some of these processes like a little too far by accident, we've got something that we can cue and reinforce where if we're a little stressed about it, like we're not going to accidentally reach in and deliver a huge reinforcer following a desperation click where like, I'm not quite sure what that behavior was, but it may not have been something that I would have taken a picture of and kept and framed. And I think that's wildly important because we also know that intermittent reinforcement produces more behavior that's more resistant to extinction. And we've known that since since a paper from in 1939. You know, we've known this for a really long time. So if there's, if I got myself into a desperation click and I did it while my horse was like pawing or rearing or doing something. And I just went like, click and I stress, reach in and grab out a big handful, but I don't do that every time. That together has probably built a behavior that's wildly resistant to extinction because from the horses, you know, like to anthropomorphize a little bit from the horse's perspective, right? Like I don't, rearing pays off some of the time. I might as well try it, right? Like it pays off big when it pays off. And you have essentially like dropped that horse into a casino in front of a slot machine, you know, where like sometimes this behavior is going to pay off and it's going to pay off big when it pays off and it's going to make them gamble, right? It's, it's yeah. going to set them up to engage in risky life choices, just like human gamblers engage in risky life choices. So I think knowing your, you know, all of this to underscore your statement that knowing about these effects of extinction can be really important because they can help us be preventive in how we approach our problems. Oh, this is why I'm taking all this care in setting up those grown-ups are talking and building the solid cue around that. And this is why I'm starting out with the 20 treat strategy and, and I'm taking the time to do just a couple reps and then walking away and coming back and doing a couple more reps and walking away. It just helps to provide, I think, more motivation for actually following through with some of these procedures when you know the bigger picture. And it's not just, oh, well, it's because it's the instructions in the book, I should try it. It's, oh, right, this is a strategy that is going to help me stay away from the emotional extremes that I could fall into. And so an interesting thing about that, right, is that you were trying to set up the handlers with instructions to avoid outcomes that they will hopefully never experience, right? So like yes. there is, we don't want you to come into contact with the punisher right. or the negative right. reinforcer. And right. so, but that behavior is really hard to maintain. It's really hard to shape and it's really hard to maintain. And so anyone who is who speeds, like anyone, knows that... You engage in behavior to avoid the negative consequences of speeding yes. for only so long until then you like get pulled over and then that behavior comes back and you engage in the behavior for a while. And that's how avoidance behavior works for all organisms. And so it's it's interesting that all of these things that are in place so that we can avoid some of the negative outcomes of extinction are really hard to shape for handler behavior. So yeah. we really have to rely a lot on on this form of instruction, right? Like, let me talk to you about what might happen and why it might happen and what we know about these processes and remind people 
frequently, because if you're doing it right, you don't encounter extinction verse and you don't encounter emotional responding. And it's hard to maintain just like when we're teaching animals with negative reinforcement, that behavior and aversive control, like you are working to avoid being hit by a whip, right? Like it's hard to maintain that if you don't carry your whip with you all the time. And if every now and then it slips and you don't engage in the consequence, right? Like the behavior falls apart. Same kind of thing with, with this, except we're trying to use all of these instructions and reminders and links to the science to help people avoid everything. I think that's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant point because you're right. If, if I've done my job well and really described this, this work well, you can introduce your horse to clicker training and have very smooth sailing. You're not going to run into the, these unwanted behaviors that can very quickly become unsafe and scary. So if I've done my job well, you won't encounter those. But there's, you know, if, if one of the reasons that I take these things so seriously is because I've watched enough horses being worked by enough people to have seen what happens when it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've, I've certainly seen horses who were very scary. And I've been around horses who were very pushy and very unpleasant to be around. I've been around the horses who are actively not just boxing your arm, which is what Robin was doing 25 years ago, but, you know, really grabbing with intent. You know, I've seen all of that. And I, I may not be experiencing it right now, but I've seen enough of it to know that I don't want it. Mm-hmm. And so grounded in all of our wonderful positive reinforcement is really the motivation to, to escape from, move away from, avoid all of these unpleasant negative behaviors. But you're absolutely right that people will often move away from these very clean teaching protocols and they'll get a little loose in their training. They'll get a little sloppy in their training and then they start to get the unwanted behaviors coming in and i'll be sitting there why 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 are you you doing that but this is exactly why that is occurring and then they come back to the clean protocol (laughs) now they know why now they know why and and that for some people they really do have to experience having the behavior fall apart to appreciate why those, why the teaching process is set up the way that it is. Why all the details? Yeah, why all those details? Why protective contact? My horse is perfectly fine. I can go in with him. Why are all these things in place? Yeah, it's a really good observation. I think that's a a good one to end on. Let people mull that over. And clearly there is so much more to be said about extinction. Wow. Thank you, Claire. That was such a good conversation. I know I'm going to be listening to it again and again. You did indeed give us a lot to mull over, which is, of course, my favorite kind of conversation. I always love it when 
it's an episode that I want to listen to several times over when it's so packed that there's things in there that I need to go back to so that I can remember all the details. And speaking of details, I've been telling you about my new book, Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend. That's another reference that is packed. The book is over 300 pages long, so there's a lot in it. The publication date is April 26th. I could jump the gun and let people start ordering it now, but the 26th is the anniversary of Peregrine's birthday. And since he's the horse who introduced me to clicker training, it just seems right to launch the book on the anniversary of his birthday. So we're all going to have to wait. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast after the 26th, then you can go ahead and order the book. You'll be able to find it on my website, theclickercenter.com, and you can also order it through Amazon and other booksellers. But remember, that's after April 26, 2023. The book will be available as a hardcover, a paperback, and also as an ebook. I'm publishing this episode with Claire on the 19th, so if you're listening to this podcast on the day that it has come out, we still all have a week to go before the book comes out. And while we're waiting, I've been writing posts for my blog. That's my answer to the elevator pitch that I'm supposed to have, where I describe the book in just a couple of sentences. I haven't figured out yet how to condense a 300-page book down into just a couple of descriptive sentences. So instead, I've been writing these blog posts and I've been talking about my training background and what I mean by the phrase modern horse training and why this book was important to write and what it adds to the other resources that I've produced. You can read the posts at theclickercenterblog.com. I started them on April 3rd, 2023, so you might want to jump back and begin at the beginning of the posts. Next week, next week is going to be so exciting because we're going to be celebrating the launch of my new book. And then we can all start reading it together. It's just so exciting. So until then, enjoy the blog posts. Enjoy this episode with Claire. Train well and have fun with your horses. Music